and we'll focus our thoughts on the latter part of our reading this evening with God's help. This is God's Word. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of God's, uh, John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bridegroom, bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Amen. May the Lord bless that reading of His Word to us. Before we sing, let's again just pray a moment. Lord God, we give thanks for Your Word, for its illumination, for the way it teaches us, for the way it leads us, and for the way it brings transformation. We give thanks for that great promise that You have given, that Your Word shall not return to You void, but that Your Word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword that pierces between joint and marrow, that Word that wounds in order to bring healing, that Word that exposes in order to clothe with righteousness. 
And so, Lord, we pray that that living Word would be at work in our hearts and lives this evening as we consider Jesus the very center, the linchpin of our faith. Lord God, we thank You for Him, for His origin and for His truth and for His power and for His decrees. And we pray, Lord God, that as we open Your Word and as we reflect upon it a time, that You would use it to bring about radical change within our hearts and lives, that we would dispense with that to be dispensed with, and that we would pursue that which is worthy of our pursuing. Lord God, that You would change us according to Your will and according to Your Word, and in step with Your time and Your Spirit. Lord, unstop our ears open our hearts. May they be receptive to Your Word and to Your will. May You lead us and guide us in the ways of righteousness. May You raise us up as a people bold for the kingdom of God and great ambassadors and witnesses to the grace of Christ in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we turn back then to this passage of Scripture for a wee bit of time this evening. Let's again sing, this time from Psalm 22 in the Sing Psalms. Again, we're going to sing the last few verses of this psalm together. You are the theme of all my praise within the great assembly, Lord. Shall we stand and sing to God's praise together? The tune's Warrington. You are the theme of all my praise.
sure if you were to go uh, around your house or wherever it might be that you're living just now, if you have anything that is precious, pictures, photographs, you'll probably most likely find them hanging by a single nail or pin or tack on your wall. Some of the most expensive artworks, priceless pieces in the world, are hung by a single nail. Some of the most precious photographs, probably, that you have in your home are hanging by a single nail. One thing that I love in life is tractors. It's a strange thing, and I cannot explain it, and yet it has been there for as long as I can imagine. And the thing about tractors is, apart from being timeless and uh, awesome, uh, is that they uh, are used so much for the production of food and other things. And uh, the beauty of them is that they can carry a, a multitude of different implements. And some of these implements are simple, and some of them are very elaborate. Um, but the thing that they all have in common, apart from the Ferguson uh, three-point linkage system, uh, is that they are all held on to the back of the tractor by a simple linchpin. A linchpin is a tiny pin of metal with a round clip on it that snaps over the end of uh, the pins that are on these significant pieces of agricultural machinery. In a sense, they hold everything together. It means that things don't come crashing off and crashing into other people on the road. They are held to the back of the machine as it works, cultivating uh, the ground and doing other things. They hold everything together. So just as priceless works of art hang on the wall by a single nail, and massive plows and cultivators hang to the back of agricultural tractors by a single linchpin, so it is when it comes to the Christian faith that Jesus Christ is the linchpin of our faith. He is the nail on which we hang everything. It beliefs, all of our future hopes and dreams are born uh, in Jesus, the person and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation. And could there be a better portion of Scripture than what we've just read to emphasize that very point to us? Why is Jesus so unique? Why is Jesus the linchpin of our faith? Why is Jesus Christ the one on whom we can hang all of the weight of our lives, the one in whom we can put all of our trust and place all of our hopes. As uh, the writer of uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem said, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Now, just a wee caveat uh, before we begin. We're looking at verses 31 to 36 of John chapter 3 here, and there has been disagreement down through the years or a bit of debate as to who it is that is speaking in this portion of text. Uh, the grammar, the style, is very much in keeping with John the Apostle, the author of this gospel. Some have thought that it's a continuation of John the Baptist and his witness and testimony of Jesus. However, I think we can safely say that it is indeed uh, John the Apostle, who is writing here. John the Baptist's words end with that great exhortation, I must decrease and he must, Jesus must 
increase. And so what we find in the rest of these verses in chapter 3 is the editorial comment, if you will, of John the Apostle as to why Jesus is so unique. Here is the reason that so many people have hung their life upon Him. Here is the reason why He is the linchpin of the Christian faith, the nail upon which everything hangs. It's a very practical section, and it's a very simple section. The gospel is simple, is it not? We complicate it so often. The story is told of NASA sending astronauts into space and them getting up to space and realizing that their ballpoint pens did not work at zero gravity. They just couldn't get the ink from the nib of the pen. They couldn't even get it to the nib of the pen because of the lack of gravity that there was. So, the Americans, not to be beaten, uh, put a lot of money and effort into research and development, R&D for a pen that would work at zero gravity. The figure, apparently, I'm reliably informed, was about $10 million to develop this pen. The Russians, they used a pencil. Why spend all of that money, all of that time, all of that effort into something ultimately that wasn't necessary? And that's kind of what John is pointing at here. Why spend all of your life, why put all of your effort into something that cannot save, that will not save? Why invest any of your time, your thought, or your faith into something or someone that cannot save you? No. Look at Jesus, the linchpin of your faith. There is no sense in putting your trust in any other thing or any other person than Jesus. And He gives us a number of reasons why. I'm going to say that there are four. Four reasons why, and there are four Ds. His derivation, where He came from, His origin, His source. His declaration, what He disclosed, what He preached, what He declared. His dominion, how He dominates all of the universe from creation to consummation. Jesus is in control, and His decree, what He has determined regarding the destiny of His people, you and I. Firstly, then, His derivation. His derivation is a fancy word for His origin. He is derived from heaven. We have that in verse 31, do we not? The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus is above all because He comes from above. He was like no other. He is the only one with this testimony. I live and work in the West Highlands where you're genealogy, who your people are, and where you come from forms a big part of people's initial reaction to you, judgment upon you. We will often ask, who are you? Where do you come from? And if you're a Highlander, who are your people? Desperately trying, of course, to make a connection, which is often the case, especially in free church circles. But imagine having that conversation with Jesus. What's your name? Where do you come from? Well, before Nazareth and before Bethlehem, I was in the throne room of heaven. I was 
with God. I beheld and shared his glory. He is like no other. We know that from John's gospel, don't we? From the very outset of John's gospel, he has pulled no punches. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is this Jesus that he's talking about, one who was pre-existent in his deity, in his divinity, in his godness, the one who became flesh. He fleshed that out, uh, pardon the pun, in verse 14 of chapter 1. We read it this morning. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 31 here of chapter 3 is essentially saying the same thing, that here is this one who comes from above, that this is God in human form. This is the one who has come from heaven and the one who is around about us. And John is not the only one that emphasizes that, is he? We know that as we open Scripture and as we continue reading, especially in in John's gospel. We come to chapter 6, which is a vast chapter. And yet, if you pick up a couple of verses from chapter 6, you read verse 32, Jesus said, very truly I tell you, is it not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven? It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. A few verses later in verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Uh, Further on in verses 50 and 51, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world." Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. There's little ambiguity here. Again and again, he reiterates this truth that he is from above, that his origin is heavenly, that he has come from above. Now, that is an important truth. It is an important truth today, and it was an important truth then, and it's an important truth that we are to reiterate as we go along. It was important for the early church fathers as they met and as they sought to define, to delineate what our faith is and who our faith is in. The Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, uh, they met and agreed and they wrote this, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. Helpful emphasizing what we've just read in John chapter 3. And Jesus didn't come down from heaven just to give us a good example. He didn't come down merely that we might have 
a holiday at the end of the year that we could exchange gifts at. He didn't come that we might just become a better version of ourselves, though there's no shame in desiring that, of course. But He came from heaven in order to die. He came from heaven to liberate. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, we've known that, haven't we, from the very outset of his life as the angel met with Joseph, who was to be his earthly father, and told him in no uncertain terms, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, Matthew 1, 21. He was born to die. He came from the glory of heaven into the dust of humanity with a purpose, and the express purpose that He might die in the place of those who deserve it. His derivation was heavenly. His origin, His source was from above. We're going to sing about that as we conclude this evening, God willing. From heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world, your glory veiled, not to be served but to serve, and to give your life as we might live. This is our God, the servant king, his derivation. Secondly, we have his declaration in verses 32 and 33. This is the truth that he proclaimed, his proclamation uh, to the world. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. He, 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 he gives a testimony, but nobody receives that testimony. But whoever does certifies that God is truthful. Just as Jesus' derivation, just as His origin was heavenly, so was His testimony. So was the message that He brought. That is why His words are superior to every other word. That is why He is the living Word, the Logos. That's why His words supersede everyone else's words. The prophet's words were significant. Of course, they were the inspired Word of God, and yet in some senses they were second-hand testimony, weren't they? Because they came from God to the prophet who wrote them and then passed them on. But Jesus, no, Jesus was there. He was in heaven. He was with God the Father. He testifies. He tells the truth. He proclaims truth as one who was there. Indeed, His disciples uh, affirm that, don't they? As they say to him, as they're facing troubled times, to whom else shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. The religious Pharisees, remember when they're trying to catch Jesus out regarding his knowledge of the law, Matthew 19, they're trying to trip him up regarding the theme of divorce, asking if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And Jesus saying, well, it's not as God designed it, Oh, but then why did, why did Moses give the command then to give a certificate of divorce to your wife and to send it away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way in the beginning. From the beginning, that's not the way it was. And do you know how I know that? Because I was there. He was there in the beginning. Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah, he recounts what was happening. He knows because he was there. John chapter 8, your father Abraham enjoyed the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. <laughs> what? You're not yet 50 years old, they're saying to him, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, 
before Abraham was, I am. First-hand experiential knowledge of what he's talking about. His testimony is from above, based upon what he saw and what he knew. Not theoretical, not second-hand, but first-hand experiential truth. And so, the obvious, the obvious question that arises in our minds then is, if God is speaking to the world through His Son, how come nobody's listening? You know what it's like. You're talking to somebody, and they're nodding, and you're talking a wee bit more, and you become aware that they might be nodding, but they are not listening to you. You could start talk about pigs flying and aliens landing, and it wouldn't put them up and down because they are just really not listening to you. They're a million miles away. It can become frustrating. Imagine what it's like for God. Now, verse 32 is literary hyperbole, isn't it? It's true that most people, there are many people who do not listen to the testimony or the truth that Christ brings. But verse 33 reminds us that there are some who do. And those who do testify, certify that God is indeed truth. Testify that we can indeed rely upon the testimony of Jesus because it is true. Because God himself is true. And as a reminder to us when we say, I can't, I can't do this, I can't do that. I can't rejoice, my life is hard. I can't be holy. I've tried. I can't. I can't. Romans, Paul's much more to the point. He says, let God be true and every human being a liar. God says, be holy for I am holy. Be thankful for everything. Rejoice in all circumstances. Be set apart. Be distinct. We say, I can't. God says, let me be true I will give you no command that I will not enable you to fulfill. If I say rejoice evermore, I will give you the means by which you may rejoice evermore. I will give you the ability, even an ability that you do not have. If I say be holy, I will give you everything necessary. And Peter reminds us that he has given us everything necessary for living a godly life. God is true. He knows all things, sees all things, enacts all things, organizes all things, as we considered this morning. And if He gives a command, then He will enable us to fulfill that command. Jesus is the linchpin to our faith, the one who holds all things together because of His derivation. His origin is heaven, because His declaration is is true. The testimony that he brings is true. Thirdly, his dominion. He dominates the universe. 34 and 35, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son, and the Son has placed everything in, uh, loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. When it comes to Jesus, the sinless, spotless Son of God, God doesn't give him the Holy Spirit in any limited form, but without measure. Even those who were filled with the Holy Spirit, even John the Baptist, who was filled with the Holy Spirit as a child in the womb, that filling of the Holy Spirit was limited by their human frame and the limitations of a finite mind and a sinful heart. Not so with Jesus. 
God in the flesh, unlimited, unmitigated, full power. John the Baptist said, I saw the Holy Spirit come and descend and remain on him. Jesus himself in Luke 4, as he's preaching, taking the scroll, opening Isaiah 61, saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This unrestricted, unmitigated, unmeasured pouring out of the Holy Spirit of God upon him. Not merely a man filled with the Spirit. People have said that. You know, Jesus was a man. He was filled with the Spirit. That's what allowed him to do what he did. And if Jesus was just a man bound by humanity, then surely we can do what Jesus did. No, we can't. Because Jesus was not merely a man filled with the Holy Spirit. He was the Word become flesh. He was God in human form. None of the prophets, John the Baptist, no one could do what Jesus could do because they were bound by the sinful human nature. Jesus was not. He possessed the Spirit of God in unrestricted form. The one who comes from above is above all. He comes from heaven and therefore is above all. He dominates the whole universe. He has the power that nobody else has. We know that from uh, Ephesians 1 and, and other places. All dominion, all power, all authority. He says it himself in Matthew 28, does he not? He dominates the universe. He comes from above. He is over all. And God has placed everything, everything in his hands from creation to the consummation that is yet to come. John 1, 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John 5, moreover, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Jesus created the universe, the world that we know. He sustains and maintains the world that we know. Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Colossians 1, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He has made it, he sustains it, he will end it. His derivation, his declaration, his dominion uh, fourthly, finally, briefly, his decree. Ultimately, Jesus is the source of life, the creator, the sustainer, the consummator of the earth, and he is the one who will determine the destiny of his people. And here we have both an invitation and a warning. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. All of humanity here is put into two camps. Those who believe and those who do not believe. Those who have life and those who do not have life. Those who will know the joy of the Lord. Those who will know the wrath of God. And the reward for believing and the punishment for not believing is not necessarily some future thing, is it? There is a sense of a present reality to these things, that life in Christ begins now, in the here and now, today. As we come to him in faith, Jesus himself said, I have come that they may have life, and life to the full, not life in the future. I've come that they may have life and life abundant. 
Paul reminds us that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, that we have been seated, past tense, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is, there is a present element to salvation and to eternal life. Yes, it is to come. There is great hope for the future, but it begins not when we die, but it begins now. There is that great joy. And yet, for those who do not believe, there's an element of God's condemnation, His wrath, because there is always just not quite that fulfillment. There is always that yearning for something else, something more, because without Christ, we come up empty. He is the linchpin, remember? He is the thing that holds everything together. And to understand spiritual life, we must first understand spiritual death. The Bible tells us that we are born into spiritual death. We are born in original sin, dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul reminds us. And God, by His grace, enables us to believe. And when we do, we are infused with His life. Life now and life that will last evermore. And it's Jesus that makes this possible. It is Jesus who is the linchpin that hangs everything together. So the question that we are left with this evening is, is your hope in Jesus? Is Jesus the linchpin of your faith and of your life? If he's not, then you're condemned. Will you hang everything on Jesus? Present belief, future hopes. That's exactly what God the Father did. He hung all of our sin on Christ on the cross. He hung the hope of humanity, if you will, on Jesus. But the question is, will we hang our lives on him? Will we know him to be the linchpin holding all things together, the servant king, the one who came from above and is above all, the one who came with a heavenly message of truth, the one in whom all things hold together, and the one who calls you to life, Jesus, the linchpin. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus We thank you for the hope that we find in him, the one who has come from above with a message of truth and hope, the one who rules all things, the one who has dominion over all, and the one in whom we find life. Lord God, may we determine, may we resolve, if we have not already, to follow Christ, the life giver, the linchpin, the one in whom we find hope and meaning, the one in whom we find a hope for the future. Lord, we pray that you would speak to those this evening who are far from you, those for whom this is an alien message, those for whom their hearts are hard and calloused. Lord God, may you draw them to yourself irresistibly. May you open the eyes of their hearts and their minds to the truth and the wonder of Jesus. May you draw them in and may they rejoice and know life and hope for the future in in Christ. And we, Lord God, that have already trusted in you, who know you as the linchpin of our faith, we who have hung our lives and our hopes upon you, may we know the great joy of Jesus that transcends our circumstances, 
transcends the providence that befalls us and sets us upon a course of great joy, knowing that our eternity is secure, that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation and that there will be no separation, that we would rejoice in him all the days of our lives we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, we're going to conclude by singing from that hymn, Servant King, from heaven you came, helpless babe entered our world, your glory veiled not to be served, but to serve and give your life that we might live. Shall we stand and sing together?